Welcome to Authentic Living with Roxanne on Global Voice Radio. Join Roxanne Durhage and her thought-provoking conversations, the catalyst to live your life to the fullest. Hi everyone, it's uh, Roxanne Durhage again. Thank you so much for joining me with Authentic Living with Roxanne. Today I have a very, very special guest, Mr. Brian Cuban. Uh, Brian, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on, Roxanne. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read a bit of your bio. Obviously, I often say that uh, the bio is kind of flat, um, but I want you to if there's anything that you want to add um, to help uh, the listeners uh, know who you are, that would be fantastic. Uh, so. Brian's uh, bio, he's the younger brother of uh, Mark Cuban. Um, he's an author, uh, attorney, and addiction recovery advocate. Um, he's, he's authored several books, uh, Shattered Image, My Triumph Over Body Dysmorphia Disorder, and The Addicted Lawyer, a Tale of the Boo, Bar Boos and Blow. Blow and Redemption. And Redemption. <laughs> okay, I had, to, I had to look at that again. Uh, are the unflinching examinations how addictions and other mental health issues impacted his profession in his life. You've spoken um, numerous event times across uh, uh, the U.S. and obviously in Canada, and you, you're often on, on media, which um, is all over uh, YouTube. Um, and uh, you're just sharing with me that uh, you're, you're writing a new book, which is, a, which is fantastic. Um, so, Brian, thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, it's great to be with you to start the week. Awesome, awesome. So uh, the the big event that's coming up is that um, Brian has um, graciously decided to come up to Canada um, to do his uh, very first uh, uh, event in Toronto under um, myself as the event uh, organizer through my brand, the Authentic Connection Movements, um, which is going to be on June 22nd. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. But uh, Brian, I'm going to just, um, you know, Obviously, everybody you know knows your last name. They know your family. You you know, regardless of who I talk to with this event, people are aware that um, of who you are. But tell us who, you know. Obviously, you know, in reading the book and um, meeting you before in St. Catharines, your, your your journey has been a long, hard one at, at best, and you're making a difference out there in, in the recovery world. But tell tell the listeners kind of your path and what got you to the point where you said, you know, it's time to share with the world and with the average person that struggles with these things. Sure. Well, I am in recovery. I am in long-term recovery from cocaine addiction, alcohol addiction. I have been to a psychiatric facility twice. I deal with clinical depression. Uh, it has been quite a journey. I've been to jail. Your listeners are probably wondering, wow, and this guy's a lawyer. Yeah, I haven't had my license yanked, but it wasn't for a lack of trying, right? But uh, it, has been, it has been a journey, and it has been a journey that has been one of self-learning, one of recovery. I've been in recovery since April of 2007, also from bulimia. Yes, guys do get eating disorders. Mm -hmm. I struggled with bulimia for over two decades and body dysmorphic disorder. So that's kind of what has defined my journey what has defined my recovery has been one abstinence from those things i no longer binge and purge i no longer do cocaine i no longer drink and now i go around the country sharing my story and what's interesting is we talk about authenticity authenticity is perfect because without authenticity you 
there is no recovery. There is another word for authenticity. It is vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And we need to be vulnerable to achieve recovery. We need to be vulnerable in order to empower others to recover. And so instead of practicing law, I've decided to dedicate my life empowering others to be vulnerable so they, they can either find recovery or help others recover. You know, that's an interesting point, right? Because I'm um, one of my specialties is addictions and, um, and also eating disorders in my path as a, as, a, as a psychotherapist. What happens though, the average person, think of it, Brian, with your, your, with your family life and kind of being in the spotlight with uh, being known, a lot of people perceive the, you know, the person struggling with addiction and mental health as being kind of the person that they can't relate to. They're not from the privileged families. Um, you know, they're the person that they, you know, may not, they may see them on the side of the street, maybe panhandling potentially, but they don't see them as potentially someone that they can relate to. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Well, to, to state a common phrase addiction does not discriminate by demographic by social demographic by income demographic it, i mean there's people from all walks of life are affected by addiction whether it's alcohol whether it's drugs i'll give you an example the first day i walked into 12 step and uh, alcoholics anonymous, anonymous is the most well known of the 12 step groups although there are others and i sat in the room of 12 step and i was comparing my stories everyone in the room I hadn't decided if I was a quote-unquote alcoholic yet and I'm listening to people without homes I'm listening to high school students I'm listening to college students I'm listening to housewives I'm listening to this wide demographic of people and they're and I'm ah, my story's worse than that guy my story's better than that woman but in the end I came to realize that while we all may have different journeys bottle to mouth needle to arm cocaine to nose it's all the same Mm -hmm. It's all the same from everyone. It's all the same for all of us. So, well, we all have different stories. We all come from different places in life. It is really the same process for all of us. And so I try not to get caught up in, well, this is my life. Yes, I've lived a privileged life. I, I acknowledge that. But that privilege meant not when I was sitting in jail. Right. That privilege meant not when I was passed out in my room you know, with drug from drugs and alcohol after a two-day blackout. That privilege meant not when I was in a psychiatric facility. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Of course. And, you know, I've, um, I've done public sector work for years in Canada, all the way up to recently running a, a private facility um, where, you know, it was a, a male facility for privileged, you know, because it was a fee for service where uh, the revenue per month is, is a lot to be able to attend. And the one variable at the end of the day is that a lot of, you know, people that end up, you know, with addictions, they may have, um, we call it comorbid, but they may have some issues uh, potentially with anxiety and depression that they're trying to yeah. find the level spot, right? They're, they're like, they're like the average person. You know, most of us can have a bit of a dip daily, but most people don't want to have that dip be so dramatic that it takes that much more to come back up. Absolutely. And I get it on social media most often, especially when I talk about dealing with clinical depression, which I still deal with daily. It, it, it is a, it is, they are often go together, but they can also be, they can also stand alone. Uh, I deal with it daily in recovery. I get, what do you have to be depressed about? Your brother's a billionaire, your brother's this, your brother's that, <laughs> yes. you're this, you're that. Well, it doesn't work that way. 
Right. It, work. it didn't work that way for Robin Williams. It didn't work that way for this person. It didn't work that way for the lawyers I know who have taken their own lives, for the people I know who have taken their own lives. It just doesn't work like that. Depression does not discriminate. Addiction mm -hmm. does not discriminate. Alcoholism does not discriminate. So I get that quite a bit. And there is a stereotype that is tough to fit through. And that is what is known as the stigma associated with these disorders. Right. Because, you know, with your background, you, you know, you should be able to will yourself out of it. The average person would think. And what a lot of people don't recognize is the, the, the depth of what happens with uh, clinical depression and how it's not, you know, I'm having a bit of a blue day. It's, it's, it's that deep entrenched thought patterns and, and those thought patterns relay into emotion and then it impacts change when you're, when your body feels so heavy and maybe you can share more, um, from, but from working with a lot of people with depression, it, it, you know, it's talking about, it's so hard even just to be able to put one foot in front of each other, much less get out of my pajamas and be able to, you know, take care of my kids this morning. Absolutely. There is what I call the normative state of what people go through. I talk about more of this in terms of body image, normative discontent, but it works with depression as well. The normative state of what people go through on a daily basis. There isn't anyone in the developed world who one day or another gets depressed, gets down, mm. and you know, I'm just having a bad day, I'm going through this, I'm going through that, and they get depressed. But they eventually come out of that, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. whether on their own or with the help of friends or even maybe medication, they eventually come out of that. Right. Clinical depression is just brings you down and you do not come out of it. Mm -hmm. I have been in bed unable to get out of bed no matter what was going on in my life no matter what good was going on in my life no matter what bad was going on on in my life i have been suicidal in sobriety i went off my antidepressant medications mm -hmm. i became suicidal in sobriety i couldn't get out of bed and i had all these great things going on around me i was sober i had i had a wonderful girlfriend my family was trying to be supportive it didn't matter Right. That is clinical depression. It did not matter. All I saw was a black hole that was this far in front of my face, and I couldn't see anything beyond that. And I think, you know, that message in of itself, just that statement from you, you know, when you go out and speak, that must be powerful because... Uh, you know, with a lot of people that I see behind closed doors, they share it with me and they say that the average person does not get it. They say, you know, hey, we can all have a blue day. It'll pop out tomorrow. You'll be fine. You know, look around. You're, you're living in Dallas. You're, you're around your, your great family. You've got this beautiful girlfriend. But that, it takes so much more to be, able to, to be able to live a lifestyle where you can kind of hit the normal um, based not just on medications, but what we know, and obviously you've been in recovery and worked on yourself in therapy, it takes so much more to develop the strategies that Absolutely. are ongoing. And it, it can't, you can't take the eye off the prize at all because, again, then the, you know, the, the depression is elusive, but it's always there. Absolutely. I tell people there were two parts to my recovery. One was dealing with where I am that was getting sober that was get developing long-term sobriety, stopping the drugs and the alcohol. But the part that was just as hard, if not harder, was dealing with how I got there. Tearing back all the layers of my life to a little boy who did not love himself, who felt like he was not loved by anyone, 
who was clinically depressed dating back to the 1970s. I was born in 1961. And in the 1970s, we didn't talk about depression. No. Depression was contagious, right? We didn't talk about that. If you talked about it to someone, they might catch it from you. That's the way we viewed depression in the 70s. So you just kept it to yourself. And so I had to deal with that little boy who felt like no one understood, no one loved him, who was bullied, who was even physically assaulted over his weight, who had a difficult relationship with his mom. No, I don't blame my mother for what I went through. Parents don't cause depression. Parents don't cause eating disorders. Parents don't cause addiction. There is a difference between cause and correlation, right? Absolutely. So we know that these relationships, parental relationships, however, can correlate with a lot of issues. They don't cause them. So I had to tear back all the layers of my life and start deal finally dealing with that little boy, finally allowing myself to be authentic, finally allowing myself to be vulnerable. And until I started dealing with that depressed little boy, my recovery really didn't start to take on the fullness and the completeness of that journey. And, you know, it's, it's, it's like you said, it's peeling back the layers of the onion. I, I often say, and, you know, with, with slipping or relapses, a lot of people struggle, right? They try and, and then they quit and they, they hit a bump and then they fall down again. And, you know, and then they, they're, they're horrible on themselves because they think I failed again versus looking at it as a, as a setback. Like, what is it that I can learn from this to be able to apply to future uh, situations that would, um, you know, help this learning along? That's right. And looking at what is driving the feeling and emotion that led to the relapse. Right. I talk to lawyers and law students and people in recovery in general who relapse and you ask them not about the relapse. I talk to them. I say, what's going on in your family? How many brothers and sisters do you have? What, what was your childhood like? Mm -hmm. And they look at me quizzically. Well, why would I want to talk about that? I need to get sober. That's right. You need to get, we need to get, we need to rebuild sobriety and start again. And that's okay. Relapses happen. But all of a sudden I hear about people who have been from people who have been sexually abused, physically abused, mm -hmm. terrible relationships as children, bullied severely. And they've never dealt with these issues. They tell themselves, I, they compartmentalize it. I don't need to deal with that. It's 30, 40 years ago. I'm over that. Because to deal with that is shaming in itself to them. Mm -hmm. people should be over these things. I say, no, no, you're carrying around a little boy or a little girl on this tire, on this chain over a gravel road. You're dragging it through life. We have to find a way to cut that chain and let that little boy or girl know that it's okay to get off that tire and walk upright. That's hard for a lot of people. It was hard for me. I am still in therapy today. I've been in therapy 15 years, constantly working on that little boy. Right. And now you talked a little bit about um, the legal profession. So I, um, in my corporate consulting, um, I was an executive. I worked with all the lawyers across Ontario and they had a peer referral arm that I worked with in developing with the provider that I was with. Now the pressures of law or, or any high level C-suite executive, I want you to focus a little bit about that because what we know is what I knew from dealing with the legal profession across North America is that a lot of times lawyers, their, their, their hours can be intense. If they're on a partnership track, that's a whole other um, element um, where sometimes they, their hours can be brutally um, difficult. Well, let's take a step back. Let's just talk about professions in general, whether it's doctors, lawyers, engineers, CEOs, 
when you go into something that tends to attract quote unquote type A personalities, driven personalities, what I've learned and what the studies, at least in the US studies as it applied to lawyers, seem to indicate is that we also have a very, uh, can have a very self-destructive way of dealing with the stress that comes with that. We, we may turn to the alcohol, we may turn to ways we have been socialized to deal with it. Maybe we've always taken a drink to deal with it. Maybe we've smoked marijuana or we've done cocaine and these things become more magnified when we go into a higher pressure and we don't have the tools to deal with it in different ways. Or we just isolate or we just work harder, but we are not dealing with the stress. We are not dealing with the pressure. We may not have ever learned how to do that starting back in childhood. And these are kind of the things I see in the legal profession and with high stress driven personalities in general, we don't like to to be vulnerable. Absolutely. So what it does is it's, but people in those positions, they are high, generally high productivity individuals. If they're, well, let's, 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 let's talk about that. Let's talk about that because yeah. I like to tell people in the legal profession, there is no such thing as a high, high functioning and high performing are two different things. Mm -hmm, okay. Mm -hmm. And there is really no such thing. You may be functioning, however you define functioning, but there is no such thing as a high performing executive if they are dealing with drug, alcohol, untreated, uh, drug and alcohol, depression, untreated. Because what happens, what I see is that we keep redefining our level of high performance. Mm -hmm. I call it the Peter principle of, of recovery. Our level of performance keeps dropping and dropping and dropping, but we keep redefining our normal day to day to accommodate that so we can tell ourselves that we are high functioning and the Peter principle working up to the level of your incompetence. The level of incompetence keeps dropping, but we keep redefining what is normal to us so we don't see it. In our mind, the time, the work expands to fit the time. We tell ourselves we are high functioning, high performing, but then it's just, it may drop slightly, it may drop slightly, then all of a sudden it drops off the cliff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And other people may see it, but we don't see it because we can't step back from it. And the other people, and this is something that happens a lot in the legal profession, they may want to be saying, I'm going to mind my own business unless they have a direct financial interest in it. We're just going to mind our own business because we're not sure. Right. We're not sure. So of course, you know, so you, then you have individuals at this level they, they you know, if they're reporting their, their certain financial obligations or um, boards that they have to report to um, a lot of big money individuals responsibility. And then they're not recognizing, like you said, they're deteriorating at a progressively high uh, rate. And then, all, you know, all of a sudden, those are the individuals that I often say, those are the people that end up on what we call short-term and long-term disability, because those are individuals that may not recognize based on, like you said, the adjustment of expectations for performance. And they're visibly not they're, they're compensating by doing whatever to get through their stressors, but they're getting sicker and sicker, but not able to recognize it for themselves. So, so you know, the thing is, when you talk to, to different companies, when you go out there or, or um, CEOs or, or heads of HR, what kind of recommendations do you make to them? Well, first, I say, how can we empower our employees so that they 
seek to improve their life and find recovery at the highest possible level. Because even in HR, even in companies, we have this philosophy of rock bottom. While I, he can't get help until he hits the worst possible point, right? Mm -hmm. No, no, we have to empower employees. We have to help them find wellness at the highest possible point. So they don't hit that. We don't want to allow our employees to wait for the consequences to catch up to the problem. And that's what people tend to do. They keep kicking the can down the road. I can work my way through this. I can think my way through this. I'll do this. I'll do that. And they try to deal with it on their own instead of allowing themselves to be vulnerable and reach out for help. So with I, my, I'm talking about law firms because that's what I tend to deal with. So I, I tell law firms, look, what, what can we put in place that empower your employees to find recovery at the highest possible level, to not wait for consequences to catch up to problems. And there are different strategies and there are different things we can do. Uh, I encourage all law firms to have wellness committees mm -hmm. that meet twice a year where they are talking about what they are doing to empower their employees. I encourage law firms to put in place uh, types of wellness activities, whether it's uh, voluntary, you know, yoga programs or meditation programs or have places they can go. That doesn't mean you have to cut into the, you know, they don't like to do that. Well, we're cutting into the bottom line. We're cutting to the profits. Our lawyers need to bill, bill, bill. Well, your lawyers need to bill smart and they need to work smart. Otherwise, in the end, if their health is overtaking all this, it is a degradation of the hourly rate. It is a degradation in the quality of work they are supposed to give. And in the end, you're losing money. And in the end, it becomes a risk management issue too. Is your lawyer going to commit malpractice, mm -hmm. which can affect your firm from both a reputation and a you know, current client standpoint? So how can we put in place policies and strategies to minimize the risk? You're never going to eliminate the risk, but to minimize the risk. And you know, these are all fantastic things. Having worked with you know, the Upper Law Society, Law Pro here in Canada, and also the peer referral, the trending analysis that we found with lawyers, then you'd re, you'd re, we would report it back, Brian. But unfortunately, it's the, it's the old, you know, elements about this old profession and how do you make shifts because they would know what was happening. They would know that they, they had a certain level, their, their divorce rate was through the roof, the addiction issues were through the roof on those types of things. And they would know that the potholes, but the, and they would say, yeah, sure, sure, we're going to apply it. So how do you, when you must know when you go into a law firm or a different environment or a different kind of sector, whether you're gonna, your message is going to be received or not? Well, the message is, in the United States, we just recently had a study came out that was put out by the American Bar Association and the Betty Ford Hazelton Clinic. And it was a seminal study. It came out a year ago, February, that found that uh, 21 percent of all licensed attorney would be classified as problem drinkers 21 percent wow. if you're a licensed attorney under 10 years in a larger firm it jumps up to over 30 percent mm. one in three licensed attorneys in big firms under 10 years of practice qualifies as a problem drinker statistically that is a those are staggering statistics so here in the u.s we have a baseline that has been established the American Bar Association is very much involved 
in getting this message and there's been a task force report. So law firms are not closing their ears to it in this country. And I've seen some stuff in, in, in your country as well, in Canada on this issue. Yes. Law firms are not closing their ears to it. So mm-hmm. they are for the most part listening, but how do you break through the old guard, mm-hmm. okay, who are used to having alcohol in their office, who are used to networking through alcohol events, where it's just a, where it is just part of the profession. That just takes time. Changing a paradigm takes time and the ABA is involved. There are those of us who are advocates are involved and it's just a little bit at a time. It's one law firm at a time. It's one lawyer at a time. Absolutely. It's not going to happen overnight. Right. Because prevention, I mean, prevention is a lot more cost effective um, than treatment, which we know, right? That's so, right. You know, putting those strategies in place, you know, and, um, you know, so that people are, can recognize, yes, I don't have to work those, you know, 16, 18 hour days or go home on the weekends. Um, a lot of uh, what we saw was that the relationship rates were actually higher in, in uh, certain professions of which law was one of them. Because again, if you're, if you're working 16 to 18 hours a day um, to get on, on a track, a partner track, what's happening to your family? What's happening That's to true. Your, you know? But you also have to remember that we are in a profession that works hard. Mm-hmm. People are going to work 16, 18 hours a day. There are going to be those times uh, law firms are to an extent going to still encourage that. Right. But we also have to encourage balance. Okay. Mm-hmm. Are you work doing that every day mm-hmm. or is it situational? Right. Right. So we have to be careful about that as well, because we are in the business of providing a service and sometimes providing that service requires X. But should it require X seven days a week? No. Right. And right. that is that is counterproductive. That is destructive. And it is destructive overall to the law firm bottom line as well, because lawyers don't work as smart. They don't work as hard. They get sick. Mm-hmm. And so, and it becomes a risk management issue as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, here in the U.S., we are taking strides to... Mm-hmm. try to change that but it, it like i said to repeat it, it is going to take time uh it is uh it is a problem that has occurred as long as there have been you know that has built up as long as there have been lawyers it's yes. not going to change it's not going to change overnight and uh, to your point that that whole element of finding the balance right there are times when there's certain um points in the year or certain client expectations that you're going to have those longer hours but it's finding the balance the other times to kind of mitigate the, you know, the, those super, super long uh, quarters that you might have. So I, I'm, I'm curious with, um, I'll, tell you, I'll give you an, an anecdotal example. I was, I'm not, obviously I'm just going to speak in generalities. Sure. I was, sure. I was talking to this lawyer at this uh, Midwestern law firm. He's struggling. He's, he, he's worried about making partner and keep asking, how's every, how's everything going? Well, fine. Well, wait, what's going on in your marriage? Terrible. Wife's getting ready to leave me. What's going on with your kids? Terrible. We don't talk. Oh, but everything's fine, right? Because everything's fine. He's making his hours and doing his things at work. Well, his personal life is imploding under him. And eventually that is going to implode his work. And Absolutely. so it is all interconnected. Mm-hmm. And law firms, as a cultural norm, have not wanted to interconnect those things. You have work. We are not worried about your personal life. That is changing. Mm-hmm. That is changing. 
And we know that's a reality, right? Like, I mean, we bring ourselves to work. So if, you know, if, if I can kind of maintain a balance between home and work, I'm a better um, individual, whether I'm at home or whether I'm at work. Now, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about, you talked a little bit about your family and um, just, you know, obviously having, as a family therapist, I've worked a lot with families and, you know, in, with the, when somebody's fully using and when they're in recovery. Tell me, um, what are things like now with your family and what was it like as you were going, trying to get into recovery? What was it like with your family? Trying to get into recovery was difficult. Uh, my first trip to a psychiatric facility here in Dallas came when I became suicidal and at the urging of a friend who, thank goodness, did not mind his own business. Hmm and let them know he thought there was a problem. My two brothers came into my house and I had a 45 automatic on my nightstand. There was drugs everywhere, there, were alcohol, there was alcohol everywhere, and they took me kicking and screaming to my first trip to a psychiatric hospital. They're trying to save my life and I just wanted them to leave me alone mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and leave me to my own devices to end my life because I thought I was doing them a favor. In my mind, I was unlovable, I was useless, coming off failed marriages. I saw nothing but that black hole when I looked in the mirror. Right. I saw this just thing that I hated, this monster, and I wanted to get rid of this monster, and I would be doing my family a favor if I got rid of this monster. Mm -hmm. People, people, you know, that, that was going through my mind when I decided to end my life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, fortunately, they came, at the, they came before that, and I didn't want their help. I did not want their help, so it was difficult. Right. And when they took me to that psychiatric facility, I remember thinking that I'm not going to let them commit me. I'm not going to let them do anything to me. And being a lawyer, I knew what the things to say. So in, in the U.S. and Texas, they couldn't do it because I wasn't a danger to myself. I wasn't a danger to others. I knew what to say to the doctor. Right. So they had to take me back home. And the only thing I learned from that, Roxanne, was now it was time to distance from them because now they know. Right. It wasn't right. about recovery. It wasn't about getting better. It was about distancing because now my family knows. Mm -hmm. now, at least my brothers know. My father didn't know anything about this. And at that time, I had a very, still didn't have a great relationship with my mom mm -hmm. over all the cross blame and the unsaid anger over our childhood that neither of us knew how to deal with. We have dealt with that, and now we have a good relationship. Great. But... So that was all I learned from that. And mm -hmm. so I went back out and now I'm distancing from them and the drugs and the alcohol. I lost my career as a lawyer. I lost all my clients. And the second time was in April of 2007 when I went for my second trip back when my girlfriend at that time, now my wife, she stood by me, found me, passed out after a multiple day drug and alcohol induced blackout and took me back to that same psychiatric facility. And that was that at that point that I really realized that I was going to lose my family because families may love us unconditionally, but, and we hope they do, right? But there are going to be probably limits on their willingness to watch us destroy our lives mm -hmm. if we're not going to at least try to take that first step into recovery. Right. Not, not necessarily succeed because people relapse. It doesn't always work the first time but try. Right. And, and I, I, did, 
I didn't want to understanding that it takes it takes time, right? It takes time. Right. To, you know, you can't just quit and all of a sudden, you know, not have it replaced with something else. And that's the that's the part that now, okay, I'm not going to use this to deal when I'm feeling hot, mad, glad, sad, all that stuff. Now I have to learn how to live again without the substance in a way grieving that space even though you know it wasn't good for you absolutely and there is a lot of grieving that space because i'm creating a void where the only thing i knew in surviving day to day were the people i did drugs with the mm -hmm. people i did cocaine with the quelling the depression with cocaine mm -hmm. the masking the depression with alcohol which at that point they both just made it worse right i was, I was chasing the high that was never going to come again mm -hmm. and and of course alcohol and cocaine with antidepressants the antidepressants don't work right right of course of course <laughs> so that really wasn't working out too well either and it was in that it was standing in that parking lot the second trip where i realized that i really did need my family i love my family i didn't want to die Mm -hmm. I realized there wouldn't be a third trip back. Why it was then and not when I had a 45 automatic on my nightstand, I don't know. Right. Why everything came together at that point where mm -hmm. I decided that I needed to take that first step, I can't tell you. But it did. And it was at that point where I realized that I had to take that first scary as hell step, terrifying mm -hmm. step into the unknown of recovery, or I would be alone forever in my mm -hmm. mind. Mm -hmm. And I would probably find another weapon. And I wanted to live, Roxanne. I wanted to live. Mm -hmm. And I, I realized in that parking lot that I wanted just one day of my life, just one day that I love myself, that I looked in the mirror and I mm -hmm. love myself. Just one day. I had not had a day like that in ever in my memory. Right. In teens, I had not had a day where I looked at my reflection and loved what I saw. Mm -hmm. And I wanted just one day, and if trying one day to stay sober gave me that, it was worth it to me. Right. And it takes a lot of hard work, right? To, because once you've done it, now you gotta you go into therapy to understand. You know, maybe you know, won't know all the whys, but now it's like, how do I? You know, you know what happened? Like, why did I start to think like that? Like, why That's did right. I? You know, why did I want to, to hurt myself where, you know, those obsessive statements that I'm good and not good enough, I'm, I'm worthless, all those, you know, you know, downing uh, thoughts that kept drowning you. At I, some point, you had to work through therapy to be able to, now it's not just quitting the substance, now it's liking Brian again. That's where the work is. Absolutely. And, it, and it's good that you bring that up because here's what happened. The next day, and this was April 8th, 2007, I walked into my psychiatrist's office who I'd been lying to for a couple of years. I'd been seeing him and lying and just getting my antidepressant meds, which were, of course weren't working because I was drinking and doing cocaine, which I didn't tell him. Mm -hmm. I was just, mm -hmm. We were talking about failed marriages. And why would you lie to your psychiatrist? Well, shame knows no hourly rate, right? <laughs> That's I was for sure. I was ashamed. I was yeah. ashamed. And so it was easier just to lie and tell myself that I was doing the right things. Mm -hmm. So I finally started getting honest with him and talking to him about things. I didn't tell him that I was bulimic because I was still too ashamed as a male with bulimia mm -hmm. to talk about that. I thought even in my 40s, I thought I was the only guy going through that. Mm -hmm. And he pointed out that we had a lot of things to get to. And he said, but we have to get you sober first, mm -hmm. right? We can't mm -hmm. start exploring all these other issues until you get sober. 
wanted me to go to residential treatment. I refused. I was much too important to go to residential treatment, right? There are no lawyers in residential treatment. I'm an important lawyer. And so even though I had no clients left, my ego was way up there. Mm -hmm. And I finally agreed to go to 12 step. Mm -hmm. And that was the beginning. But 12 step is about getting sober. Right. 12 step is not with dealing with how you got there. 12 step is dealing with where you are, stringing together sobriety. Right, right. Or whatever you do, whatever your method is. I'm not pitching 12 step. That was just my method. Yes. And so there was a lot of therapy, finally, a lot of mm -hmm. real therapy, a lot of soul searching, mm -hmm. a lot of tearing back the just the brutal layers of my life to heal that little boy and let him know he was loved. Acceptance and commitment therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, yes, right, role playing right. therapy, mm -hmm. talking to my little boy, talking to my mother. Mm -hmm. I was very lucky, Roxanne, because my mother was willing to, I will say, insert herself into my recovery and explain how she was raised. There was a lot of fat shaming in my household. My mom used to call me a fat pig and this and that. And these were the things her mother said to her. And these were the right. things my great grandmother said to my grandmother. Fat shaming in families is often handed down generationally. Mm -hmm. And my mom was not apologizing. The tool she was given with, by, in her verbally abusive relationship with her bipolar mother back mm -hmm. in the 60s and 70s. And when I understood all that, I really was able to find a place for all that and forgive her and let go of the anger. And our relationship began to improve. But all of the genesis of that started with my therapy. With Absolutely. My therapy. And you know, and, and family is so important. And you're, you know, you're, you're, you're so key in saying that. Right? They love you, but then after a while it becomes, how do I watch this person self-destruct? It's, it, it's, it's killing me on a profound level. And from, you know, as a family therapist, when I work with families, that's what we see. Family want to, they love the person, but they can't see the person destruct and, 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 and slowly kind of um, basically kill themselves right in front of the family. But once someone steps into recovery, it takes even a more powerful system to be able to support the individual to say, okay, we're going to learn to trust you again, but you've got to gain that trustworthiness within yourself. So concurrently you work together to really kind of, you know, you know, uh, get together again to kind of formulate how are we now as a family going to be able to, you know, go on and, and start to have some kind of functioning again. Absolutely. And that leads into where I am today. Mm -hmm. My girlfriend back then who was with me for that second time to the psychiatric facility coming into my, she had gone away for the weekend. Easter weekend 2007 came home and there was drugs everywhere, alcohol everywhere. I'd had a, bl a blackout. She stood by me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I would have left. I would have left. She stood by me. Right. And she stood by me while I rebuilt the broken trust. Mm -hmm. Well, I found recovery. I couldn't do it for her. I right. couldn't do it for my parents because even in recovery, tragedy happens, sadness happens, life mm -hmm. happens. You have to be able to withstand all of that, not to relapse. So I have to do it to me. For me, I didn't know she was going to stay long term. It couldn't be for her. Right, right. And so not all relationships will survive this, but they can survive this. But for me personally, I know looking back that mine survived because I did it for me. And I did it for my long-term health. I couldn't do it for my family. I couldn't do it for her. Even though the initial motivation may have been for family. 
Right. I wanted to show my family this, whatever the initial motivation is, whether it's fear, shame, whatever, whatever gets you to that first step, that's great. But in the end, it has to be for me. And it has to be for my life fulfillment. And in doing that, the family sees, the family starts to trust again eventually, the family starts to interact again eventually, I start interacting. All of a sudden, I'm back going to events with nieces and nephews. All of a sudden, I'm back right. you know, hanging with my brothers, hanging with my dad. And all of these things come together as one of the gifts of recovery. But it took work. It, it takes took a lot of work, doesn't it? That's you right. Have to, you know, um, and it, I often say that, I, you know, it takes a lot of work, but the, all the energy that was going to the substance, and if you take that energy and then put it towards recovery, it's a powerful thing when you start Absolutely. to see the individuals start to trust themselves again to make a different choice. And then the family says, we've always loved you. We, we, we need, just need it for you to demonstrate even incremental steps that you're willing to do certain things. Whereas before you would have taken off on a run. Now you're like saying, you know, I, I almost, I thought about it. I'm, I'm craving, but I need to talk to someone or I need to be able to sit with someone. Absolutely. And my wife's supportive. My brothers are supportive. Mm -hmm. I mean, everyone's, everyone is supportive. They've seen the worst and right. now they are very gratified to see me, what I've been able to do in sobriety right. and what I've done with my life in sobriety in terms of, you know, going from a profession of thinkers, lawyers, I still have my license. I, I, I deserve to lose it, but I could go back to practicing law. Right. I don't want to. I've, I've gone from a profession of thinkers to a profession of helpers, helping other people try to find what I found. In the context of their own existence. Right. It doesn't have to be exactly what I had found, but mm -hmm. finding it within the context of their own existence. What a gift you're giving back, you know, to sharing this message, right? To having been through it and, um, you know, I'm sure people listening are struck like I am, um, you know, just hearing your words and, and obviously the pain that you went through. I mean, I often say when a baby comes in this world, Brian, he's not thinking about, he's, he's completely happy and fulfilled generally. And then life starts to kind of take away that brightness based on so many variables. Um, and then before you know it, it could be an addiction, it could be depression, it could be lots of different things. But as human beings, we all have feelings, right? And we want, oh. we want, we want to be validated and we want to be admired um, and we want to be loved. Um, Everyone wants to be loved. Absolutely. Everyone wants to be accepted, whether you're eight years old, 15 years old, or 57 years old. Everyone Absolutely. wants love and acceptance. Now we view that in different ways based on where we are in our life, mm -hmm. but that is a biological need a psychological need that starts from ground zero and goes with us throughout through our lives and how that drives us is what is different for each person Absolutely. Love and, the need for love and acceptance can be as powerful a motivator to destructive behaviors mm -hmm. as a drug itself absolutely and absolutely. so we have to find a place for it we have to find balance and it, the need for love and acceptance cannot define me. Well said. Well said. Now I I'm excited that you're coming uh, to to join us in Canada on June 22nd. Um, so for anyone listening, um, we will provide links um, to the event. But Brian, I'm 
I'm so grateful that you took this time with us today. So for any companies that are out there or leaders that are looking to have speaking events to have you come, or for anybody looking for copies of your book, can you direct them where they can get a hold of you? Sure. Absolutely. The Addicted Lawyer, Tales of the Bars, Booze, Blow, and Redemption is available on Amazon. You can just Google The Addicted Lawyer, and that's the one that's going to come up. Right. Or go to Amazon. Uh, my website is www.briancuban.com. You can go, I have a, a tab of all the places I've spoken and how you can get a hold of me if you're interested in having me speak. And plus, my blog is there. I blog on these issues. Uh, and so it's a fairly well-read blog. You can go and read uh, what I have to say on these different issues. And come out and meet him on the 22nd because- Yes, uh, and come out and meet me on the 22nd. I, I'll tell some, I love to come to Canada. I've met Roxanne before when I spoke in St. Catharines. Uh, the Canadian customs doesn't seem to like me. They always, they always give me a hard time, but I'll tell a funny, and I'll tell a funny story, story yeah. about that when I, when I speak, but, uh, but I always make it through. Okay. Awesome. Well, we'll try to say, um, he's coming through just make sure you're nice to him because you're, you're not, yes, I am. I, I look, it's funny, but, uh, I have a, I'll tell a funny story about that when, when I speak. Awesome. Well, Brian, thanks again. So for, uh, my listeners, um, if we've heard anything today, it's about um, being real. And uh, that first step into making any change uh, is tough, but um, we're all looking for the same things. Like Brian said earlier, we're all looking to be connected and loved. And um, you know, what I'm hoping is that you can come out on the 22nd and uh, meet Brian, uh, get a copy of his book, and um, you know, here's some of the additional wisdom that he's gonna share with us. So thanks again for uh, listening to Authentic uh, uh, living with Roxanne and uh, we'll chat with you soon.